You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll dig into this together. Father God, thank you for this word this morning. Uh, and as we come to you, we come as a people who confess that so often we turn to other things besides you when we really need to turn to you. We need to come to you. We need to bring our whole selves to you. And so we pray that we would be transformed by the truth that you are our Father, that we would want to, that we would desire to come to you more and more in our everyday lives through prayer. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So I heard a story recently of someone, uh, and it's, unfortunately, it's not a very unusual story, uh, at least in the context. Now, where it goes might be unusual. And the context is, during COVID, uh, this person got really, really isolated. And Again, not, not an uncommon story, right? They, they live alone, they work from home, as most people are doing, it seems, or many people are doing these days. Uh, yes, they have some relationships and some connections to people outside, but you, know, you, you order your groceries online, you, you stay in your house all day long, you get cooped up, and you're just left alone with your own thoughts, and, and it can be very isolating. And in this person's case, they, they had some mental health things that were going on alongside of all of that. Uh, again, not uncommon. But then that was just exacerbated through COVID and being alone and, again, being alone with their thoughts and uh, began to have trouble sleeping. Uh, and in light of that, began binge drinking to try and put themselves out, which, of course, we know doesn't work began seeing a therapist, which was a little bit helpful, but the therapist was focusing on only one portion of this person's life, mostly mental. But what we've got to remember is that there's also a spiritual dimension to us as human beings. We're not just, you know, meat, right? <laughs> we are also uh, a spirit, and, uh, and, and the transformation in this person's story came when someone asks them the question, what do you think God is up to in the middle of all this suffering that you're going through right now? And as they began to mull on that and, and kind of process through what is God up to in the middle of this, what was amazing was it actually it, it led them to a time in their life where they began to ask God that question, <laughs> which led to them praying and talking to God and what's so amazing is that through the, the, the experience of turning to God in prayer on a regular basis, and I'm not just talking about once a day or once a week or, or something like that. I'm talking about all throughout their day. They're just talking to God as they go about their day. Rather than living in their own head and living with their own thoughts, they're bringing themselves to God through, throughout the day. Through that process... God has used it to, to transform them, to recognize that He is at work, that He is present with them, that He is good despite the darkness that they experience. And the, what I want you to take away from this story is that talking to God, prayer, is absolutely transformative. And I'm not giving it to you as like a fix-it tool, like, here, here's prayer, now go home and go fix it, you know, that's not my point. My point is, is that God is a God who wants us to talk to Him. And it's this amazing privilege that we get as His people. And the, I think the big idea that we're going to see through Jesus' teaching today is that our Heavenly Father rewards us with Himself, so we should pray. Now, I need to give us some context for where we are at in this uh, text in, in Matthew chapter 6. Last week, we said that for the majority of chapter 6, Jesus is going to emphasize that we must have a complete 
and total devotion to God. Rather than merely offering Him our outward actions, also giving Him our whole self, our hearts, our desires. And Jesus is challenging us to to look more closely at what drives our lives, what drives our behavior, and He's going to do it through a few case studies. Last week we looked at giving to the needy, and this week we're going to focus on prayer. And He doesn't anywhere condemn us for having religious practices, religious habits. Rather, He he calls us to align our hearts in a proper posture so that those practices are rightly aligned. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we hypocritical or are we whole? Is our relationship with God a means to an end, like people's praise, we want to look good in front of people? Or do we come to Him as our Heavenly Father who knows us, who knows all of our faults, He knows our needs, and yet He still invites us to come to Him. But before we learn from Jesus how we should pray, we actually need to learn from Jesus how not to pray, which is, actually, is how He orders this teaching. And we need to learn from Jesus how not to pray because the black hole of hypocrisy has a constant gravitational pull to our hearts. We're always being drawn toward that pattern in our life, and we need wisdom from Jesus so that the light of being with our Heavenly Father eclipses that black hole, so that His presence has a stronger draw on our hearts than the draw of being seen by others. So let's begin to look at this. We're going to begin in verse 5, and and first again, we're going to look at how not to pray. And this is going to be split up into two parts. Part one of how not to pray, then how to pray part one, part two of how not to pray, and then part two of how to pray. So verse five, here's what it says. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. So just as last week we looked at giving to the needy, What Jesus is telling us is priority number one when we pray is don't be a hypocrite. (laughs) Don't be a hypocrite. And we looked at, again, we looked at hypocrisy in depth last week. I'm not going to do that here, but the, the general point, if you weren't with us or you've kind of forgotten where we were at, hypocrisy is turning the world into a theater and you become an actor on a spiritual stage. And you begin to perform for other people so that you will get their praise. And, and the point is, is that you don't want a wholehearted relationship with God. You want to be seen by others. And in the same way, uh, as Jesus warned us before, we need to know that living hypocritically is making an exchange. He's talking about this again. He's using the language of reward. Reward. We're making an exchange when we live hypocritically We're giving up the eternal reward of God for something far less wonderful, for a temporal reward of praise from people. And so he says, you must not be like the hypocrites. Don't be like them. Don't don't be a fool, is what he's saying. Instead, here's how you should pray. This is part one of how you should pray. Verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So just like last week when uh, we looked at giving to the needy in secret and not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing and all of that stuff, I've been trying to sort out how we're supposed to apply what Jesus says here. What exactly does this principle uh, have for us in our, in our everyday lives? In fact, what does it look like for us at Trinity to apply this principle in, in our church as a whole? It says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray in secret. And so I've decided that we're going to stop praying in our church services. I'm glad that it landed a little better than last week. Yes, that's a joke, sorry. We're, of course, not going to do that, but we are left with the question, the same question that we had last week. 
what are we to make of Jesus' instructions here? Does He want every one of us to, you know, build prayer closets in our home? One for each person, because you can't have more than one person praying at a time, right? So in my house, I'm going to have to build five prayer closets, right? And, and, and everybody just only prays by themselves. Is that what Jesus' point is? Well, no, it's not. Uh, in the same way as we looked at last week, Jesus is saying, if you've been an actor in the religious theater, you need to repent. And repentance is a change of mind, it's a change of heart, it's a change of actions. And if we have been acting in our prayer life, if we've been insincere in our relationship with God, prayer hasn't been true prayer. We haven't been talking to Him, we've been putting on a show. We haven't cared about Him We've sought the reward of people's praise, and so the correction to that is to remove ourselves from that situation entirely. Change, uh, when repenting of hypocrisy in prayer, change is deliberately returning to God and spending time with Him as an end in itself. It's getting our relationship with Him right which if you've been a public performer, it's going to require being secretive about your prayer life. But also, as with last week, I want to restate the fact that this is not just a blanket command, that that this is a specific application of repentance for hypocrites. So yes, we are going to keep praying in our services, don't worry. Uh, We're going to keep praying in our community group gatherings, going to keep praying with our families and with our roommates and maybe our teammates at work, but because Jesus is offering us a remedy to a problem, He's not giving us a blanket command for all prayer, for all people, for all time. In fact, it would seem that the very nature of the prayer that He goes on to teach us is meant to be communal. You'll notice this when we go into it. It, He says, our and us and we, that's the language. And what's really interesting about this whole prayer closet concept is that for much of church history, this inward emphasis has actually led people to interpret Jesus' words here spiritually, Uh, meaning when He says for us to go into our house and into our inner room and pray, people have taken it to mean that Jesus is referring to the house or room of our soul. Whether or not this is actually, you know, what Jesus meant, I think it's a valid point. I think it's, it's probably a both-and scenario. It's probably true that we should go into the literal room of our house away from people's praise, but also go into the inner room of our soul and meet with God personally and closely. So after telling us how to pray, Jesus then returns, he bounces back for what not to do when we pray, and then again, he'll come back to how to pray in just a moment. So here's how not to pray, part two. This is verse seven, and we'll look at eight as well in a moment. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, why would people heap up empty phrases in prayer. Well, this is actually a different problem that Jesus is addressing. Rather than hypocrisy, Jesus is addressing paganism. And the key word that clues us into that fact is the word Gentiles. Did you notice that word, Gentiles? Now, Gentiles can mean a number of things in the Bible, but at its root, Gentile means non-Jew, right? And in Jesus' day, um, that pretty much meant that you were a pagan. If you weren't part of the Hebrew people, you're a pagan. So Jesus is not using uh, Gentile as some sort of pejorative racist comment, but rather he's speaking to those who are speaking about those who are pagan, people who don't know the living God. Now, less than a century later after Jesus teaches this, um, the, the gospel would go out to the Gentiles, and the, wor- uh, the, the word Gentile would actually begin to carry a very different meaning than the way that Jesus uses it. It mainly would be focused on people's ethnicity, people who were non-Jew by, by their ethnic group. But here, Jesus is using it specifically 
to talk about pagans, and, and generally when Jesus uses the word, that's what he means, people who don't know God. One Bible commentator says that pagans needed many words to be heard by their gods because their gods dwelt far off in the clouds and could be reached only through massive effort. So why should we not pray like them? Not just because it's pagan, but also because it's unnecessary, Jesus is saying. More words do not equal being heard by the one true God. In contrast to pagan understandings of God, Jesus drops this bomb here in in the how not to pray. In verse 8, He says, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And there's kind of a record scratch moment here, right? It's like, hold on, what? You're telling me that I don't need to try and manipulate a fickle megalomaniac up in the sky, Jesus? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes, He's saying God is your Father. That word your, it's like y'all. He's talking to all of us. Jesus is saying God is y'all's Father. He's all our Father. This is incredible. You mean, Jesus, instead of having the the distant pagan deities floating around who, who are unrelated to my life and what's going on in the world around me, you're telling me I get to have a familial, close, intimate relationship with the all powerful creator of the world? Yes. Yes. It's it's amazing. Just let that sink in for a second. We're going to come back to it in, in just a moment. But first, think about this. God, your Father, knows what you need even before you ask Him. Think about that for a second. What are we to make of that? The, the obvious thing that Jesus is emphasizing is that wordy prayers are unnecessary. We don't, we don't need to use that. We don't need to manipulate God like the pagans do. It's a waste. God already knows, so why should you sit there and spur on and, and, or continue on with, with all these extra words? God knows what you're even going to say before you say it. But I think that there's another reason why Jesus is telling us that our Father knows what we need even before we ask Him. There's something else I noticed as I read this. Think about where verse 8, where this statement that Jesus says in verse 8 is placed in the Scripture. Check this out. I think Jesus is also saying, because He's about to go in in verse 9, He's about to tell us how to pray. He's going to tell us uh, what it looks like to pray. I think Jesus is also saying that it isn't that God doesn't merely know what we need before we ask him. I think Jesus is saying that we also need the prayer itself. That, that it isn't just that we go to God with our needs of bread, as, as we'll get into in a moment, but that we go to God with our need of him, with the prayer itself. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And what do you need? You need to pray. You need it. You need Him. You need, you need to pray more than you need shallow social media. You need to pray more than you need to fill your ears and your heart with more fear-mongering and, and greedy news broadcasters. You need to pray more than you need to binge watch anything. You need to pray more than allowing your worries and your anxieties to get so bottled up into your body that it actually stops working properly. You need to pray more than you need to overwork. You need to pray more than you need busyness and more stuff on your calendar. You need to pray more than you need to mull on how much you hate that person who wronged you. Jesus is saying that God knows what you need. And what do you need? You need to pray. And so he says, talk to your heavenly Father. Talk to him. And talk to him like this. How to pray, part two. 
Verse 9 is where it begins. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's so important about this is that we don't pray to just anyone. We don't pray to just anyone. We don't pray to Buddha. We don't pray to, you know, the great spirit or, I don't know, the great pumpkin, right? We, we don't pray even to a myriad of gods, and we don't pray to an ambiguous God. We pray to our Father in heaven. And what we learn about this Father is not just that He's all-knowing, like Jesus talked to us about in verse 8, but that His name is to be hallowed. That means holy. His name is to be kept holy. His name is to be treated as holy because He is holy. This is the God who exists in all holiness. This is the God who exists in heaven. This is the God who is to be revered and worshipped above everything else that He has created. And yet this is the same God who wants us to call Him Father. He wants us to call Him Father. And as I thought and talked with the staff this week about this prayer, we, we started talking about what might Jesus' audience have heard when he was saying this. When he was telling them to pray to God as a father, would they have been familiar with that? And I think the answer is yes. As God's people, they would have, they would have viewed God as their father, at least to some extent. You know, we talk about the founding fathers in America, right? The men who organized this nation and, and led to its existence, its, its formulation. And there's similar language in Scripture about God basically founding the nation of Israel. There's obviously some big differences. God was an emancipator of a nation of slaves. He was a redeemer. And so God actually says in the Bible, out of Egypt I have called my son because Israel is like God's son. And as their father, he freed them from their captivity, their slavery. But while his audience would have been somewhat familiar with this concept of God as a father, say, of a nation, what Jesus is talking about here wasn't familiar. This was new. This was very new. Here we find a degree of intimacy beyond what anyone except maybe a king like David could have possibly imagined enjoying with the creator of the universe. Think about how a father contrasts with the names that were used of God in the Old Testament. So just let just chew on this for me for with a minute. With me for a minute. There we go. I'm going to tell you a few of the names that God has given in the Old Testament. The Lord our provider. The Lord our healer, the Lord our banner, the Lord our peace, the Lord our shepherd, the Lord our righteousness, or here's some big ones, everlasting God, mighty God, supreme one. And the great thing is, all of these names of God, they're, they're God, they're still true for us today, they're, they're still true for how God relates to us. They're beautiful, they're rich, and they, they express God's majesty and the kind of involvement He has in the lives of those who know Him. And so Christians, we don't lose anything of the God of the Old Testament, but none of these names express the kind of proximity that you get with a loving Father. And notice that I said loving Father, and I, I have to say that because all of us have had human fathers who were not perfect. Amen? Amen, fathers? <laughs> For those of us who are fathers, none of us as human fathers are perfect. And many of us have had fathers who were either absent or lackluster or detached or impersonal. And still others of us have had fathers who were just horrible and abusive. I was talking with my mom a couple days ago, and she was telling me about her father. I, I, I never got to meet him. He died before I was born. 
um, of a heart attack at a very young age, which tells you a little bit about him and the kind of person that he was, a very unhealthy person, an off-and-on alcoholic, a man who, while he did do good in providing for his family uh, financially, was not a provider of anything else. He was completely removed, and whether that be emotionally or his presence. And when he was around, he would just get angry and lash out at the kids. And my mom became a Christian kind of in her late teens and went away to college. And she, she had not grown up in a Christian household. She didn't know who this father was. And she found herself in a situation one day where she was uh, needing to pay for her rent and for her school the next quarter. And it was coming due, and she wasn't sure how she was going to figure out where she was going to get this money from. And she's praying, and she's praying, and she says, Heavenly Father, and she, she's turning to God in prayer, and she's asking Him and pleading with Him to provide. And she said one of the only times she's ever heard the voice of God out loud, verbally, was in this moment. And as she's struggling with doubt and wondering whether she's going to be able to make ends meet, God says, I'm not like your father. I'm not like your father. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm here with you. And that, that moment completely transformed the way that she saw God as her father. From then on, it's been, it's been a completely different situation. And for all of us, whether we had a good father or not, we have to divorce our idea of God as our father from the very worst aspects of what we think of when we think of Father. And so rather than thinking that way, try if you can with me for just a moment to imagine the most idealized Father that you could ever have. A loving Father, one who's gentle, who's present with you, who's kind, yet strong. And now imagine the most idealized God that you could ever have. A God who's all-powerful, who's all-knowing, who's all-present, who's sovereign over human history, who's just, who's merciful. And now take those two things and combine them. That's who our God is. That's who our God is. He's our Father who is in heaven, whose name should be hallowed, made holy. And because of God's holiness and because of how great He is, we, we can tend to view Him with terror and fear. And, and there's something that's right about that. But calling Him our Father helps give balance to how we see this God and, and allows us to naturally desire to come to Him because we know that He's committed to us. And we don't just assent to Him as an idea, but we come to Him through relationship. This is our God. This is our Father. So what should we say to Him? We have to begin with what Jesus begins with, addressing him, and addressing him with that same love and reverence, but that sets up what follows in the Lord's Prayer. Let's look now at verse 10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Bible reveals God as the king of the universe. <clears throat> We need to do a little bit of work here on the issue of kingdom because this is kind of a strange concept for us. But the Bible, it reveals God as the king of the universe, and from the earliest pages, it also reveals a cosmic war that is going on behind the scenes, a war that's going on today, a war between the powers of good and of evil. And as humans, we've gotten caught up in this conflict. We've often worked as God's enemies on the side of evil. 
And this kind of work that we do at its root, it's, it's sin, it's idolatry which causes suffering and death. But Jesus came to free us from that sin and idolatry. He came to heal us from our suffering. He came to deliver us from death. And He came to disarm the evil powers on earth. And He's done that through His crucifixion and His resurrection. And now, today, He's King of the earth. But the problem is, not everyone and everything has accepted His rule. And as I heard one pastor describe it, we are in a time of midnight. We're in a time of midnight. It's dark out, right? There's still evil on earth. It surrounds us. It fills. It, we are full of it at times. And yet it's also midnight in the other sense of the word because it's morning. It's morning, which means that the sun will soon rise and the light has begun to come. It has just not yet come in full. And verse 10 is a prayer that that would happen. It's a prayer that the sun would rise. Come, come, Heavenly Father, through Jesus. Come, bring your kingdom. Because in heaven, everything always perfectly runs in accordance with God's decree. It never opposes Him. Nothing opposes Him. Not evil powers. Not humans. And while we are here, our prayer is that this place, earth, would become more and more in line with that reality. That His perfect will would be done in us in this world. And when this happens, things flourish. When we live in light of His will, humans flourish. When creation functions according to His will, the earth operates in the way that it was meant to. Everything is healthy. Everything is thriving. There's love. There's justice. There's peace. There's creativity and beauty. There are people who are taking responsibility for themselves. There are people who are being treated with dignity and always having everything that they need. This is at the heart of Christianity. Wanting God's kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now sadly, many evangelical Christians have lost sight of this prayer kind of turn this prayer around, made it say something different and opposite, made it say something like, let me come to your kingdom in heaven and leave earth. We've kind of grown uh, this idea of, of escapism, increasingly obsessed with leaving earth and going to heaven. But the vision of the story of that God is orchestrating, as told in the Bible, is the opposite of that. God's plan is not for us to escape earth, but for Him to bring heaven to earth. And when we pray this, God aligns our will with His will. And we're compelled to live in such a way that He actually invites us to work with Him toward this heavenly vision on earth, we get to work on His behalf, which is amazing. And, and aligning our hearts with Him with this portion of the prayer then leads us to be able to pray the rest of this prayer. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. So we bring our requests to our heavenly Father. We ask Him to give us what we need. And the question we always have to ask when we're asking for what we need is, do I know what I need? Do I actually know what I need? And I think the answer is yes and no. <laughs> sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. 
but bringing our requests to God in light of verse 10, that His will would be done, allows us to actually release our desires for these needs to Him, trusting that He will give us what we need when we need it. And so praying this prayer of give us this day our daily bread, it can be an act of dependence. We need our God to provide for us every single day. Kind of like Israel would get manna when they were in the wilderness, right? Oftentimes we, we lose sight of this fact that we need God every single day to provide for us. We, we go out and we work and we get a paycheck and we come home and we think, I think I provided. I provide. I, I, I don't necessarily need God to provide for me, forgetting, of course, the fact that God is the one who provides us with the work and the energy and the ability to earn that paycheck. But praying this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is more than just asking for our material needs. Every single day we need physical bread, or if you're, you know, gluten intolerant, I guess it's something else, I don't know, uh, rice <laughs> to survive, right? We need food to survive, but just like we need food for our bodies, it's a reflection of the fact that our, we have a greater and spiritual need. We need our spiritual food from God every single day. And that's why this prayer isn't a prayer of give us you know, bread for the rest of our lives. This prayer is actually designed to tether our souls to our God who gives us life and breath and food and spiritual food to the point where we can't imagine our life without Him. Yeah. Amen, Mike. Can you imagine your daily life without God? You know, the reality is you don't have it apart from Him. And so we've got to step into reality. We've got to align ourselves with what is true. And so I, I just challenge you, if, if you can imagine your life without God on a daily basis, pray the Lord's Prayer every day and see if your life isn't completely transformed. Reminding yourself of this reality. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I'm not suggesting that you make, you know, a rote religious ritual out of reading the Lord's Prayer, reciting it every single day, but genuinely, from your heart, praying these words, reminding yourself of this reality. But not just praying the Lord's Prayer itself, not just making requests for things like Jesus has here bread, but praying the Lord's Prayer and praying for bread is meant to lead us to a richer prayer life in general, to the point where, you know, asking God, give us this day our daily bread, uh, leads us to pray for all kinds of things, both big and small. So we're called to pray for things like world peace, things that are just huge, right? But we can also pray for that parking place when we're, you know, running late and, and we really need to find a spot so we can make it to that meeting. Our Heavenly Father wants us to bring these things to Him. He wants us to come to Him and ask. And He also wants us to bring Him our junk. Amen? Our Heavenly Father wants us to bring Him our junk. He's not afraid. You can bring Him your bitterness. You can come to Him with your sin. You can come to Him deeply indebted to His grace and His kindness and just cast that stuff at His feet. As Jesus goes on to teach us in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now we're going to talk about forgiveness specifically next week when we cover verses 14 through 15, but for now I want to just talk about our need for forgiveness. And God, 
in the Bible uses a lot of analogies for sin, and one of them is cosmic debt. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Our sin makes us eternally indebted to God with a deficit that we just cannot pay back. It's kind of the opposite of karma. The way that karma works is you, you kind of outweigh your bad deeds with your good deeds. Not, not the case. We cannot do enough good to outweigh the bad. And some of you understand what this feels like because of your material debt. You know, you've got mounds of credit card debt or you've got school loans and you just feel like, man, I'm never going to get out from under this thing. That is how we should feel about our sin until, until we meet Jesus. Because as Christians, our situation before God is not like that one. Because Jesus, it says in the Bible, canceled our record of debt when he died for our sins on the cross. He paid our debt in full because God is that merciful and that gracious. And so now regularly looking at the state of our hearts and whether or not we are harboring that unforgiveness or unforgiven sin, it's, it's a key aspect of prayer in the life of the disciple. Do you confess your sin to God? Remember, He's our loving Father. Why, why wouldn't you confess your sin to God? Why wouldn't you come to Him? Why would you want to carry your debt around with you? Why carry the burden of your own guilt and shame when He's telling you? He'll take it. Confess your sins to God. And verse 13, ask him, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to close by looking at this final movement of the prayer, and there are two requests that Jesus is teaching us to make. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And for the first one, I want to tell you a story. I'm going to tattletale on myself as a pastor. You know, I make mistakes. And a number of years ago, I was counseling a guy uh, who was struggling. He was, he was looking at pornography. He was trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to free myself from this bondage? And he was asking God to remove those temptations from him. And I, I told him, I said, no, 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 no. You should be asking God to make, uh, make you stronger to fight those temptations, and that's, that's an important part of changing, by the way. I still hold to this. I think this is true. That we need to develop that strength and that new muscle memory that we didn't previously have in order to be a stronger and, and transformed person living the life in the spirit that we're called to. But what I'm wanting to tell you the story for and why it's tattling on myself is I want to correct something that I said to him. I was wrong, because he was right too. He was right to pray that God would allow him not to enter into temptation. I mean, Jesus says it right here, right? I don't know what I was thinking. I must have forgotten the Lord's Prayer when I was talking to that guy. And in fact, it's not just here. Like, it's not just Jesus teaching us to pray this, but we also recognize that this prayer of not leading us into temptation, that's actually in line with God's MO. This is just how God is. James 1 verses 13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God himself won't tempt us. It's good news. But he does lead us to places where we can be tempted by evil to do evil. If you don't believe me, look at the life of Jesus, right? Earlier in Matthew's gospel, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says Jesus was led by the Spirit to the wilderness to be tempted. That was the whole reason why he was there. 
And so, yes, God does allow for us to get into places where we might face temptation. But it's a good prayer to ask Him not to. (laughs) And it's a good prayer to ask Him for the strength to resist that evil when we are tempted. And so this is a prayer that God likes to answer because it's ultimately a prayer that He will change us in those experiences. And that first request that He would lead us not into temptation is closely tied to the second one, that He would deliver us from evil. And this evil could be evil in general, but it could also be deliver us from the evil one, which is evil personified. In the Bible, this is the person of Satan or or the devil. And yes, we believe in Satan and the devil, that he is real, and that we need to be delivered from him. And so, so that in our life, God's kingdom would actually come and his will would be done, we need to be delivered from the evil one. Think about Jesus in the garden, in the garden of Gethsemane. He had already passed the evil one's test of temptation in the wilderness. He did so with flying colors, even though he was weakened by 40 days of fasting. And then he comes to this moment at the end of his life several years later where he's facing temptation that seems absolutely unbearable. Absolutely unbearable. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And what does he do? What does he do in that moment? He prays the Lord's Prayer, basically. I mean, he prays and echoes almost everything that we see him teaching us to pray here. Check out what, what just one little snippet of that. It says that he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus doesn't just give us an ideal. He gives us an example. Jesus puts skin in the game. He doesn't just tell us, you know, go get after it. Go pray to your heavenly Father. He actually does that himself. This Jesus, who's the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he's on his knees talking to his heavenly Father, and he doesn't just tell us to surrender our will to our Father. He does it himself. The kingdom of God doesn't come to earth in some vague and, and mystical way. It comes when Jesus takes on humanity and all that comes with it. Jesus is praying with us. That's what he's doing. Jesus with us, he takes on the messiness of this prayer that he has just taught us. With us, Jesus takes on the weakness of this prayer. Jesus takes on this absolute dependence on our Heavenly Father that this prayer cultivates in our hearts. He embodies both the experience and the necessity of this prayer. And then Jesus answers our prayer. He he meets our eternal need by winning our salvation through His death and resurrection. He, He delivers us from the evil one. And how did he do it? How did he find strength to face that incredible, insurmountable temptation? He did it by turning to our Heavenly Father in prayer. What an amazing gift. And he's giving this gift to us. Our Heavenly Father rewards us with himself, so we should pray. I'm going to pray in just a second, but I want to give you two community group questions. These are, if you're in a community group, you can use this to kind of spark the conversation a little bit. If you're not, I encourage you uh, to, to get involved in Disciple Equip, which begins next month, and that's kind of a first group and a way that you can enter into community group here. But you can use these questions this week as just a, a way of reflecting. 
Number one, how is your view of God different from the hallowed or holy heavenly Father Jesus describes in this prayer? How are you seeing God differently than what we talked about? Number two, read the Lord's Prayer aloud together and then listen for the different movements. Jesus prays for different kinds of things and different kinds of modes of prayer. And use that as a way of kind of looking, where does your prayer life need to find greater balance? Maybe Jesus is praying for one thing that you never pray for. Maybe you never pray and bring your confession to God. Maybe you need to find greater balance in praying a prayer of confession on a regular basis. That's, that's what I mean by that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond to God together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in love and in reverence and awe of who you are. The fact that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, that you are sovereign and yet you invite us to this place of calling you our Heavenly Father and being in this intimate relationship with you. God, we are blown away by that reality. And God, each of us is in a different place in our relationship with you, in, in how we pray, in how often we pray. And God, each of us needs you to come and to change us, to transform us so that we want to come to you more and more. And I ask God that you would do that now as we respond to you in this service, as we go from this place on your mission, would you change us and change our view of you, our relationship with you, and our prayer life as a result of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.